It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Megan Hatcher-Mays, she is the director of democracy policy for one of our very favorites, Indivisible. And she is here today to talk to us a little bit about DC statehood. Thanks for joining us. Megan, you and I haven't seen each other since we did the Rise Up for Row tour <laughs> um, to try to stop Brett Kavanaugh. It, it didn't That's work. That's right. Jess, we did our best. Uh, <laughs> we went around the country. We did. Trying to, well, and this is before, you know, even the hearings when a lot of the, some of the worst revelations came out and we'd gone around oh, the country yeah. letting this people know that Christine. he was, yeah. yeah, and letting people know how terrible he was. And uh, and then it got even worse. And, you know, I guess there are no debts <laughs> really to Republicans' depravity. So now he's a Supreme Court justice. But we tried, Jess. We sure did. <laughs> you guys did we a really good did. job. We really we, did. We tried really, and I think that <laughs> he will forever be remembered by some of the um, narratives that people, you know, create not created but established during those hearings and that was feminist yeah. organizing yeah and i don't sure. think I mean, people it, would think... be aware if he was you know uh, that it was even happening um you know in part because of the activism that happened before the revelations give yourself some credit I, I, I will. <laughs> thank, thank you thank you, thank I, you will. I, I think i think that's right and so, i think you know this was one of the first times that people on the left were really starting to pay attention to the court and so the silver lining of course is now people are hyper aware of the supreme court which is on balance of a good thing yeah. yes yeah I, that is honestly the only silver lining of the horror that we have lived through uh that i will admit <laughs> in the last four years is that people right. are aware like watching our government mm-hmm. break made people aware of how it's supposed to work <laughs> And that's unfortunate, but you know, in the same way, like every time you get an illness, you become an expert on that illness. Uh, I guess that's a silver (laughs) lining of it. So my question is, uh, is is DC statehood a fight like the Kavanaugh fight? Are we going to try real hard and lose? Or is there actually, uh, is there a chance here? No way. It's not a fight like the Kavanaugh fight. This is, this is a big moment for DC statehood. This is the closest uh, we have ever been to getting statehood for the district. You know, I think for many years, I think it was thought of as kind of like a fringe thing, or it was like sort of a yeah slogan, a slogan on a license plate, if you will, no taxation without representation. And that has changed significantly. That. Yeah, <laughs> that has changed significantly just in the last um, couple of years. One big thing, and we we're just talking about silver linings. One of the silver linings of the Trump era, again, was people kind of waking up to what was going on, people figuring out ways that they could be engaged. And what that resulted in was like a huge uh, wave of Democrats being elected in 2018, which meant that the House was able to pass a lot of good stuff. That included D.C. statehood for the first time ever. The D.C. statehood admission bill passed the House with nearly every single Democrat voting yes. That had never happened before. So in the span of a very short period of time, you know, D.C. statehood goes from being a license plate slogan to having passed the House. That's huge. Um, You know, it obviously stalled 
after that because at the time, uh, Mitch McConnell was in charge of the Senate mm-hmm. bill, and he had said, you know, he had compared D.C. statehood to full-bore socialism, and he had compared himself <laughs> to the Grim Reaper uh, there to kind of kill any progressive legislation, including statehood for the district. But now we're in a different place. Now we do have control of the Senate, and there's still a lot of work to do on the Senate side, but this is completely within reach. It's, it's worth the fight because we can do this, and we could do this um, this year, in the year 2021. So what's happening? What's happening on the on the? Is it the 22nd that they're having the 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 hearing? Yes. So the oversight committee in the House is having a hearing on DC statehood. This is just a really great opportunity for um, uh, Congresswoman Norton, who is our statehood champion on the Hill, our non-voting delegate for the District of Columbia, um, to kind of beat back some of the worst Republican arguments for why DC shouldn't be a state. <clears throat> So that hearing is going to go over the constitutionality of D.C., the fact that D.C. Uh, has more residents than Vermont and, I believe, uh, Wyoming um, or North Dakota. For sure. The fact that we are financially healthy, we can support ourselves as a state, all of those things. And then it will be an opportunity for Republicans to be ridiculous and um, so mm-hmm. something to look forward to. Last time there was a hearing like this, Republicans didn't have a lot of good arguments on the merits for why D.C. shouldn't be a state. So they focused actually a lot on where they would park if D.C. became a state because there would be, I guess, less parking on the Capitol complex. <laughs> so they're very concerned about where <laughs> they're going to park their vehicles. Less so concerned oh about the 700,000 people who live here who have no voting representation in Congress. That is not as important as where Jim Jordan is going to park his car if D.C. were to become a state. So I'm not joking. That actually all happened. Um, so I suspect a lot of um, foolishness of that variety will probably happen uh, on the 22nd. But the good news is, is that this hearing is happening. It'll be a really good opportunity to kind of air out all the arguments on, on both sides. Uh, again, not very many good ones on the Republican side of things, but it, it'll be really great. And then after that, hopefully the bill will get marked up. It'll move to the House floor for a vote. And we can and we will absolutely will uh, pass this in the House again this year. Jim Jordan doesn't have a right parking spot. <laughs> I, we were just last last segment. We were we were trying to give everyone at home a pep talk. And we were like, look, you are better than Louis Gohmert. I don't even know you at home, but you are better than Louis Gohmert. And again, you are better than Jim Jordan. You at home. Correct. I don't even know who you are, but you are better. And so if <laughs> you want to run, you better to run. In Congress. Because Jim Jordan is waking up every day and putting on a pin. Okay? Not a jacket, but the pin. Okay? No. Um, He's famously and, and, allergic to jackets. That's true. I'm just saying. I'm just, just saying. Yes. I mean... <laughs> I, I, I hate ad, ad hominem attacks, but I feel like there's like this weird middle space where this attack fits, where it's not at, it's just facts, it's observation. Um, DC statehood is essentially a civil rights issue, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. yep. one of the things we've talked about on this show, we, um, I don't think it was with you, I think it was with another guest, but we were talking about this exact topic and I don't know that it really, I know that DC is chocolate city. I know that, you know, it's a, Mm -hmm. um, it's a, uh, or DC city, um, that DC, um, is a place where there are a lot of black people. And when there are a lot of black people, oftentimes in American history, we have gone out of our way to disenfranchise those people. Um, that's right. Speak to this idea that 
this is a civil rights issue and that in part what what's not being said is like we don't want to give dc statehood because that's giving a lot of black people political power by giving them an elected representative that's 100 percent correct yes um so historically as you just said dc has been a majority black city Uh, And the reason for that is, is that so like nine months before the National Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln emancipated um, the slaves in the district. So that became a place where immediately, you know, thousands of black people were were free in places where they hadn't been um, before. And that also became that immediately made the district really attractive to people, uh, to uh, former slaves who had been freed to come because they could be free in the District of Columbia. So historically, this has become a, a place that's very attractive to black people. And the um, the population of the city was largely black for that reason, because it was a safe um, jurisdiction to be, to live and to work um, for the most part. There is a lot of historic documentation that shows that, you know, a lot of, con- you know, conservative politicians at the time, white politicians were looking around, noticing the demographics of the city and saying stuff like, we cannot give the people who live in the city political power. There are too many black people here. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the general sense at the time. And not a lot has changed mm-hmm. in the 200 or so years since people, uh, you know, white politicians were making these statements back in the uh, 1800s. You know, by the 60s, you know, we had a mayor and the chairman of the committee with jurisdiction over D.C. You know, they had just received our budget, so Congress still has the authority to approve or reject our city budget with our, that, you know, we put together with our local tax dollars. But at the time, um, you know, this chairman had received the budget and in response sent a wagon of watermelons to the city's black mayor. And that was, you know, oh my God, that was, you know, within 40, 50 years ago, right? 60 years ago. So right. that same thing Jesus. is happening now. They're just not saying it quite like that. They're not looking around and, you know, Republicans aren't looking around and explicitly saying there are too many black people here in D.C. to give them power. But what you will hear them saying is there are no working class people in the District of Columbia. So that is like Tom Cotton's go to dog whistle is to say D.C. can't be a state because unlike, say, Wyoming, uh, there are no miners in the District of Columbia. There are no like steel makers, you know, steel workers, if you will. When you, so when you make those comparisons between Wyoming and DC, what you're saying is there I'm are just white people sitting in here like who work, open mouths <laughs> shaking my head, which yeah. is not helpful for radio. But I'm genuine. No working class people in DC, right? So 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 he's and when you say you know. D.C. is not like Wyoming. What you're saying is Wyoming Wyoming is white and D.C. isn't. So yeah. the people who live in Wyoming who are working class deserve political representation. The people who live in D.C., and here's me tooting on my dog whistle, uh, do not. So that's a very clear, um, you know, sort of racist argument that is being made there. So Tom Cotton is trying to do a couple things. One, he's trying to paint D.C. as some sort of out-of-touch elite place full of lawyers and bureaucrats, right? But on the other hand, he's also trying to erase the fact that we have a very strong working class um, population here. They just aren't white. They just yes, aren't exactly. white coal miners, right? So these our working class people are the people who cleaned up the mess on January 6th, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that was black people and people of color that live in the District of Columbia who had to clean up that racist mess. But to Tom Cotton, that doesn't count as um, working class. So Zerlina, to your point, Is- 
Is this a racial justice issue? Absolutely. 100%. Like the fact that this city is mostly not white, our black population is right under 50%, but um, our, um, our white population is under 50. So there's more non-white people who live in the district than there are white people. And that plays a huge, huge role in whether or not um, uh, the Congress wants to admit us as a state. That, that has historically been the reason why they deny us uh, representation. Is, is what, I'm, is I'm what happened on January too. 6th playing a part in this conversation? Like the fact that DC, like Eleanor Holmes Norton wasn't allowed to access the same sort of security that like, say, I don't know, Wyoming would be if that was happening there. Like, is it, does that change the conversation at all? So the, the question is how, um, how law enforcement operates in the District of Columbia. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part of the question. It just just did does the insurrection, the fact that that happened in D.C., where Eleanor Holmes Norton was not able to mobilize the National Guard in the same way uh, a representative from another state would have been like, does the insurrection happening in D.C. change this conversation or or drive it home for anybody at all? I see what you mean. Yeah. So so in that situation, so under normal circumstances, it's the governor who would be able to call in the National Guard and the National Guard would come. Our mayor, right. who is sort of like a quasi governor, does not have that power in law. It's up to the president to decide whether or not uh, to approve the mayor's request. So the mayor can request the National Guard to come, but the president has to approve it. So what happened on January 6th is that the mayor was like, my city's under attack and I would like to call up the National Guard. And Donald Trump said, no. For many hours, he de- denied the request, and ultimately the National Guard did come, but by that point, you know, the Capitol had been breached. So you would think, you know, there's this one party of su- quote, supposed law and order that that might make a difference, but it really it really hasn't. Um, there's just a lot of denial about what happened on that day. Um, there's no, doesn't seem to be any real interest on the part of Republicans to um, want to take account for what happened that day or make some changes to make sure that never happens again, other than putting up a lot of really ugly fencing. But if, yes, if this had happened in another state, the governor would have been able to step in and say, Hey, I need the national guard. I need help. Governors do this all the time without any, you know, rigmarole. Uh, but it, I think right. just like the, the events of last summer where, you know, Donald Trump sent in the military and the FBI and ICE into our Black Lives Matter protests to, you know, tamp those down really violently, really open people's eyes to the ways that, like, the district is not treated the same as the states. So, you know, in the states, the federal government can't just show up. They have to ask permission. And if the governor wants the help, they can acquiesce and say, yes, you can come in. In D.C., you know, Donald Trump can just send in ICE to a Black, Black Lives Matter protest. He doesn't ask, have to ask for anybody's permission. So I think that's been um, really eye-opening for people who don't live in D.C. to see, like, that's really, you know, the need for statehood, you know, it, it affects us in a lot of ways. We just don't have the independence that the states have. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I've also been thinking about, um, oh, do we have to go to break? Jess? No, we still have oh, I thought a you're... couple minutes. You're okay. Oh, we have three minutes. Okay, good. I have one more question. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and my question is, you know, how now that, you know, the Congress is like taking up this issue, I think the, the, the challenge now that more people are aware is getting them to actually feel like they can do something about this, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. think one of the um, 
you know, persistent problems we have is that it it feels like you can't affect change, right? I think we just mm-hmm. looked through an election. We learned that, in fact, if we put all of our efforts together in a big group, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we can we can make some change. So how can people try to, I don't know, raise awareness um, that the Congress is taking up this issue now and that we want to call mm-hmm. them and make sure they know that we support D.C. statehood? Like, how how can people get involved? That's just this question every time, but I really am interested in this because this is an issue that flies under the radar and it really shouldn't. Yeah. It should be a racial, ju- it should be on the list of racial justice issues that we talk about all the time. 100%. It's 100% a civil rights issue. It's critical for the health of our democracy that we make DC a state. I mean, our Senate is becoming more and more extreme and less and less representative. The way you fix that problem is by making more states and we've got one right here. It's really good. And it can be a state. We're ready. We're ready to go. We have a constitution drafted. We're good to go. Um, so here's what you do to help. So most Democrats on the Senate side are supporters of the D.C. statehood bill. But it will not surprise either of you and probably your listeners to know that there are a couple holdouts. Uh, I'm sure you can guess who they are. Um, one is Joe Manchin. One is Kristen <laughs> Cinema. <laughs> one is uh, Angus King of Maine. And then the fourth is actually, we're not totally sure where he's at, but Mark Kelly, also of Arizona, um, not quite yet a supporter. Now, we know some of the other newer senators like Warnock and Ossoff have supported, they supported D.C. statehood on the campaign trail. So we feel pretty good that we're going to gain their support. But the first thing we need to do is to make sure all 50 Democrats are supporting um, this bill as co-sponsors. And so we really need to make sure that we get Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema. Angus King and Mark Kelly on this bill as co-sponsors as soon as possible. And then we need to make sure that when this bill comes up for consideration, that we get rid of the filibuster so that we can make D.C. a state. No state ever has been subject to the filibuster prior to admission. We do not need to have the filibuster, even if you, I don't know, even if you do support keeping the filibuster in other contexts, which I don't know why you would, but let's say you do. For this (laughs) particular issue, for statehood specifically, no state has been subject to the filibuster um, to be admitted to the union. We do, should not start with the District of Columbia. So um, really, really important, one, to get all 50 Democrats on that bill as a co-sponsor, and two, to ensure that they support getting rid of the filibuster so that we can make D.C. a state because, um, you know, Donald Trump is gone, but Trumpism persists. And so fixing our democracy by, you know, passing the For the People Act and passing the Voting Rights Act and making D.C. a 51st state, that's how you prevent, you know, that's how you prevent Trumpism from flourishing, is by addressing the root causes right. of what brought us Trump in the first place. Yeah. Make us the democracy we've always pretended to be. Megan hatcher uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning and also for doing this work. It is incredibly important, and we appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a ton of fun. And great to, stay great safe. to talk to you. Stay guys. safe. Oh, yeah. Yes. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.